0: Hey, we're your hosts, Alina and April. Some of the stories we tell are fun and interesting, but some of the subject matter is downright disturbing. Sit back and And enjoy enjoy the the show. show. Hey, listeners, Um, life got the best of me this week and I didn't get a chance to record. But no worries. We have a brand new show coming next week and April's back from out of town. So you'll get to hear her once again. And until then, enjoy this special show from our guest co-host this summer, Trish. Mishandling of Evidence Mishandled, damaged, or lost physical or digital evidence can happen at any time during the chain of custody, at the crime scene, during the packaging, when transferring, and during evidence analysis and storage. Sometimes it's not only the victims that suffer due to mishandling of evidence, but the accused as well. A story I will share with you this Tuesday. Want to earn some extra money this summer? Come babysit at a neighbor's house, they say. Free food to eat, creepy movies to watch, and maybe even some cool closets to explore through. Just make sure one thing, you keep the kids alive and you don't get murdered. This is the case of Janet Crispin. Tuesdays with Trisha. The last episode. Welcome to Columbia, Missouri for my last and final episode of Tuesdays with Trisha. My signature line is if you are a first time listener, welcome to the coolest place on earth. And if you're a repeat basic bitch, my heart is with you. And just know there's more to come with this basic bitch here. That's for sure. So as we travel into Columbia, it is known for being a college town home to the college football team, Missouri Mizzou Tigers, the University of Missouri. Columbia is the fourth largest city in Missouri, and this town breeds cultures of politics, journalism and art. Our story begins today on March 21st, 1946 when Janet Chrisman was born. Her parents were Charles and Lula Chrisman. The family originally lived in Boonville, Missouri, but eventually moved to Columbia, Missouri. The family owned a restaurant called Ernie's Cafe and Steakhouse, and they lived above the cafe on the upper floor. They were said to be a well-respected family that made an honest living. Now, it was said that Janet, was always known as a go-getter. She knew her family wasn't rich, so she worked hard for everything she wanted. Janet was described as a bright, young 13-year-old girl by the 1950s. She was a churchgoer and was a student at Jefferson Junior High. She loved to play the piano for the church choir. She was described as intelligent and independent for her age. She also made a living by helping out at the restaurant, and also most infamously with most teenage girls, babysitting. Now, I definitely have to admit, when I was younger, growing up, maybe it was because like I was more of like a middle cousin, meaning that was like born in like the middle of the pack that I never really had the babysitting gig, but. Even growing up around, like, the neighborhood, I never really liked going around and, like, talking with the neighbor people or anything. Unless I was friends with their kids, you wouldn't catch me dead, like, in, like, a block party or anything. I'm still like that, like, as an adult. <laughs> I get major anxiety with my neighbors. It's good to be cool with your neighbors because you want people to, like, look out for your your house if you're, like, ever, like, gone or anything, you know, or if, like, your dogs ever get out or something. But as far as, like... Hanging out with your neighbors? I don't know. For me, it's always been some shady business, <laughs> meaning like drama, which you can definitely catch me avoiding in the place where I live because you just don't shit where you eat. Right? Okay. Wow. Well, you know, easier said than done. But anyways, I never like did like the whole babysitting gig. So, you know, I know obviously back in this time, it was probably a lot more popular in order to make like a quick buck, but never did the babysitting thing. wonder if any of you listeners ever ventured into your babysitting times. Curious to see what stories people have, I guess. (laughs) I remember like my older cousins babysitting me and I like babysat my sister. But I think that's different, right? I don't know. Anyways, on Saturday, March 18th, 1950, Janet was supposed to attend a school dance, actually. I think it was probably considered more of like a spring fling. Um, A bunch of her friends actually wanted her to go uh, and were like encouraging her to go. But it looks like Janet ended up declining because Janet actually already had plans And I wish I would say something extremely exciting here, but Janet was actually planning to go babysit for Ed and Ann Romack. They had a three-year-old son, and his name was Gregory. The Mueller family was another family, and they were actually friends with the Romacks. So this is how they found out about Janet, because Janet babysat for the Mueller family. And since Janet actually had her eye on like this burgundy suit that she wanted to buy and wear because Easter was coming up. It was, I guess, an easy choice for Janet. She was like, screw this, this dance. I'm going to go babysit. I'm going to make some dough so I can go purchase my cute suit, which can't blame you, Janet. You know, I've definitely worked my ass off for a handbag. Yes, I have spent money obscene amount of money on a handbag before. But you know, some people choose shoes. Some people choose to invest. I choose to buy handbags. Something wrong with that? I think. (laughs) So um, she ended up deciding that she wanted to babysit. And you know, to a lot of people, it was exactly what Janet would have done she wanted that money and she was actually determined to work hard for it because she knew her family wasn't well off so she knew she had to work hard which you can totally respect especially for a young girl at that age go get it janet okay so on saturday around 7 30 p.m instead of going to the dance Janet arrived at Ed and Anne Romack's house. They had just actually moved into this house. It was a new house for them, and it was actually a more rural, rural and isolated home. It was 1015 Stewart Road, and it was actually wasn't considered in Columbia, the city, but it was kind of like just right outside of town. Now, I don't know about you guys, but... I grew up in California and I grew up in Lake Elsinore. And when you're driving down, like I used to grow up on this main road, we call it Grand Avenue, and it actually ran all the way through Miri- through to Murrieta. So you'd be driving on the road and you'd be in Elsinore, and then all of a sudden you're in Wildemar. So that's, I'm pretty sure, exactly how it worked in the Chrisman situation and Janet situation where, um, when she went to this house, it was just like outside of town. So and I, and I say this for a reason, so just pay attention as to why I'm making such a big deal about the jurisdiction. If you're a crime junkie, you know, then you probably already or guess can guess where I'm heading with this. So just so you know, um, Ann Romack was actually pregnant at the time of this. So I'm sure you could actually like imagine Anne with, you know, her three-year-old kid. So Ed and Anne had a three-year-old boy that obviously that's why Janet was going to babysit. And all while having to like move into this new home. So I'm, I'm sure you could imagine her being a little bit exhausted as far as that. And it was actually rare for her and Ed to have a night to themselves, to like actually spend as adults. And they had planned this evening to spend the evening at their friend's house, the Muellers, who actually the ones, the reason why they know Janet. And they were going to spend it drinking and playing cards. Now, when Janet got there and Romat Romack explained to Janet that Gregory enjoyed to sleep with like the radio on, so there really wasn't much she had to do. All she had to make sure was that Gregory was safe and stayed asleep in his bed um, while in the house. And it was cool because the radio was on, so Janet could technically make like a little bit of noise, and it really wouldn't disturb the the boy. Now Ed Romac, on the other hand, decided to show Janet where the like house gun was. I don't know if this was common back in this time, but he showed her how to load and unload the gun and he left it safely by the front door. Okay. And instructed Janet that if somebody actually came to the door that she didn't know, she was actually supposed to turn the porch light on and keep the door locked. So, That was like her rules, I guess, that Ed wanted to do. And said, hey, take care of the kid, make sure he stays asleep. Radio on. Cool. So when everyone left, everything was good. All was in order, and the Romax and Janet all felt safe, or so we think. Now, I have to just say this honestly, when I first read this case and like when the articles all of them that i read all described that ed like went out of his way to like show a 13 year old how to load and unload a gun i was kind of like what the what the heck is going on with this um but then i thought like you know i was trying to think like okay maybe it's just like a routine thing for them to do obviously they don't have like ADT security or cell phones to call. So that would make sense, you know, and they lived in like a more isolated area at the time and it was new. So you never know what could happen, right? So when you think about it, it's like kind of like, okay, we'll go Ed. That's cool. Thanks for showing the babysitter that. So the night goes on and it was said actually during that evening that The weather was actually particularly pretty bad that night. The temperature actually dropped to the mid-20s and like rain and sleet ended up covering like the streets. So around 10.30 p.m. that evening, Officer Ray McGowan was on duty when he received a frantic call from a woman on the other line. There was some sort of screaming and asking for help. And then the receiver just went dead. The officer figured that the bad connection had something to do with the weather. So he figured the woman would just call back. I know a lot of people are probably like, well, that's just ridiculous. Well, remember, they weren't tracing calls back then. So obviously, if she didn't leave any information, information which she didn't, what was the officer supposed to do? So, technically, he did exactly what he could do, was just sit there and wait and see if anybody else decided to call back. Now, around this around a little bit later, around midnight, the Romax actually tried to phone Janet because it was obviously late, wanted to check on the babysitter, see how the kid was doing. But no one actually at the house picks up. And they honestly, both of them, didn't think it was really a big deal at the time. They figured, hey, it's just bad weather or this is late. Janet probably fell asleep. So they actually continued on with their night. And around 1.30 a.m. is when the Romax decided that, hey, it was time to close up shop. Let's head home, relieve young Janet. So immediately when they arrived at the house, they knew that something was wrong. The first indication was that the porch light was actually on, just like Ed had instructed Janet to do. And when they entered the home, they realized that they also didn't need to use their key because the door was unlocked, just like Ed had instructed Janet not to do. And when Ed and Ann Romack opened the door, they found Janet sprawled on the living room floor in her own pool of blood. Her pants were down, were down below her waist, and she clearly had been raped and beaten to death. They immediately called the police. Obviously, they also ran right upstairs to go check on their son Gregory, and he was fast asleep in his bed unharmed, and untouched. And then this is kind of where I say that everything goes wrong for this case, because after they call 911, law enforcement gets involved. And like I mentioned before, the Romax actually didn't live in Columbia. So when Ed actually called the 911, the Boones County Sheriff's Department were the ones that showed up and let you guys, you know, don't get it twisted. They didn't disappoint. They brought numerous sheriff department members along with bloodhounds to help investigate, but it didn't stop the city police, Columbia city police from arriving and trying to claim jurisdiction over the case. And this is where I'm talking about, guys, that the case starts to go wrong because too many hands in the cookie jar. Okay, so one of the first most notable things about the discrepancies with the departments, with both, both of them together, was when they found what looked like to be a broken window in the living room. That indicated possibly that there was an intruder that came in, but... The porch light was on and the door was unlocked. So both departments had contradicting theories on to what actually happened to Janet that night. So it was basically clear that both parties involved that Janet obviously had been assaulted, right? She had been hit with blunt force trauma. The police believed that it was actually like a small lead pipe of some sort. And she had been sab- stabbed multiple times with, this is so odd. A mechanical pencil. I know fucking weird. I don't know. just to me it's just weird. And then actually she was hung with an electrical cord. And it looks like the electrical cord had been cut at both ends to like make the cord tighter. So she was clearly like strangled with it. And it clearly indicated, too, in the crime scene that little Janet definitely put up a fight because there were blood smears all over the walls. And it looked like the perpetrator had actually fled to like the back door of the house um, as the back door had been found open. And died of the killer Elmo. They ganged up on Elmo and Cookie Monster smashed his head and Shakira the singer kicked him in the face. Are you paying attention? (laughs) I'm sorry, I just had to disrupt everything that we were talking about right now, because I just want to make sure all my listeners were paying attention here. Um, And just so you know, when I was writing my script, my daughter came in at some point and decided to write those lines that I just said into my script. So I just had to like, say it right there and throw you off for a second. So (laughs) 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 haha, see if you're paying attention. Okay, so anyways, back to the story. So this is where the actual problem arose, okay? The police had found the broken window in the house, indicating that someone may have broken in, right? And the sheriff's department came in with the dogs, and they were able to follow a scent that trailed from the house to the back door and then up the street, and then the trail basically goes blind. But, you know... I don't, know, I don't know what the scent dogs were given to track whatever sort of smell that they find. But police had also no- noticed that the porch light was on. And if it was true, then Janet followed Ed Romack's instructions of turning the light on when someone came to the door. More notably was the shotgun by the door. It was actually left untouched. So this made some law enforcement believe that Janet somehow knew her assailant because she would have just like opened the door. She wouldn't have used a shotgun. Right. But then they're like, okay, well there's this broken window. So maybe someone could have came in by surprise, like in a surprise attack. So, for this reason, law enforcement decide it's a good idea for them to basically do like around the clock surveillance around the Romac house. So hoping that be, somehow maybe the killer might return. Um, they also actually reached out to the public for help, asking people to come forward if they knew anything. And for a while there, police were bringing in offenders like basically in the area and I guess they were focusing on more of what we call it like the easy way out. And I just say, um, i.e. meaning like race issues. Obviously, they the time is around 1950s. You know, race things are still happening. So obviously, they're going to focus on common local criminals. And in a lot of articles I read, it says like they focus on black people or black men, which is just ridiculous. But... It's the time. So that's where basically, you know, you you get blurred lines because they're focusing on just what's in front of them, not the bigger picture in this. So as I also read about the case, several sources say that this wasn't the only rape and murder that happened in the area around the time. So in fact, there were several other cases that were ongoing in the area, but police couldn't seem to find a connection, but they probably were still thinking that there was one, but there was actually one person in particular to the police who kept standing out to investigators and his name was actually Robert Mueller. Now, if you recall, Robert was a friend of the Romax. and he actually attended the get-together that night, the same one as the Romax did, because they went to the Mueller residence. So, a few things stuck out about Robert. First, Robert had actually contacted Janet the day of the murder and asked Janet herself if she was able to watch his kids. But Janet said, no, I'm sorry. I have prior engagements with the Romax. So, A, Robert knew where basically Janet would be at the time of this get-together. Secondly, the night of the party it's actually reported that robert left for a few hours he claimed that his son was sick and the doctor was coming to the house but when police investigate this later they realized that that didn't happen at all no one ever visited the mueller's house at night hello there was a party going on ed's comments were helpful for investigators as well because he actually stated that Robert knew Janet because she used to babysit for all of them. And he even actually recalls a few times where his so-called friend Robert made lewd comments about Janet and said kind of like what a busty figure she has, She was like coming into. And even further... Ed Romack said that Robert was known for having a fetish with girls who were virgins. And on the morning of the murders, Robert had actually phoned Ed and asked him if he needed help cleaning up the crime scene. But if you think about it, or as a lot of people have reported, how in the world would Robert have ever even known what had happened? Like there was no, you know, wasn't in the paper or anything at the time. So how did he know? And then furthermore, when Robert was there, he actually, when he actually got to the house and was helping like Ed clean things up, he'd said something along the lines of why would anybody just break in? You could just knock on the door and say, Ed sent me here to get more poker chips. Like what? Like, wait a second. So you did leave the house. Is that what you did? <laughs> and I was saying, guys. You know, like I don't know. That just, it's just super weird to me. And the fact that you know, like he already knew about the crime before it happened. Now, let's back up a little bit for a second, and let me tell you about Robert Mueller okay so he was actually 27 years old at the time and it was said that he served in the united states army and retired as a captain at 27. he had distinguishable honors and was a well-respected man so when he moved back to columbia he took over his father's restaurant called mueller's virginia cafe and he also worked as a tailor so he was a fellow restaurateur Or like owner. So same kind of thing that Janet's family worked in. And it also said that people around the town described him as a very well-groomed man. And more particular, he was always known for having a mechanical pencil in the front pocket of his shirt. So obviously, you guys, with all this evidence, law enforcement decide to confront Robert, but it's weird because law enforcement decided to not do the traditional route with this. They, meaning like they should go get an arrest warrant, handcuff, bring the person down to the, uh, you know, police station and question him and then do like a polygraph test. But it is said that instead they decided to bring Robert several hours away and they apparently interrogated him in a barn and then later took him for a polygraph after that. And guess what? He actually passes this fucking polygraph. So since he passes the polygraph, law enforcement now have no choice but to let him go. So they basically claim that they don't have enough to keep him after that. Well, fucking duh. So after the Robert incident, uh, from law enforcement standing, basically the case goes cold, which is super frustrating. But a judge has actually seen the Mueller case and he thought actually otherwise. And he decided to get like a grand jury on the case and have a further look into the case as far as Robert Mueller being a suspect. But not to drag this on any further and to put it simply, over time and legal proceedings, basically the police, it just comes down to this, you guys, the police mess this up so bad that nothing further can in the case can go against Robert. They fucked it up. So even though we may have the smoking gun or, you know, the stuff right there, the police botched this investigation so much that so there was no way they were going to ever get a conviction. And you know how that goes. It goes to cold case. So obviously with nothing further to go on, the Janet Christman murder case goes cold. Eventually the Romacks end up moving to Idaho Falls and Ann Romack died sometime in the 1980s. Ed did end up remarrying and he ended up living until 2016. And it looks like their son Gregory is married and has a family and successfully living in Alaska. The Chrismans stayed in Columbia and worked at the restaurant till Janet's father, Charles Chrisman, passed in 1974. Lula Chrisman moved to Kansas City, and their eldest daughter, Rita, started a family, and their youngest child, Cheryl, moved to Florida. I don't know if Lula Chrisman is actually still alive today. And as far as Robert Mueller, he ended up moving to Tucson, Arizona. He had his own family and he eventually passed in 2006. Today, in 2021, Janet Chrisman would have been 85 years old. The Romax and the Chrismans have always firmly believed that Robert Mueller was involved in Janet's murder, but because of botched police work, unfortunately, y'all will never know. Janet Chrisman's murder again remains unsolved to this very day. Now, at this point, y'all, I would normally say, I'll see you next time. See you next week on Tuesdays with Trisha. Um, but I would actually like to tell all of you farewell. <laughs> it's bittersweet for me. Uh, this podcast has been my baby. And, um, it has been hard definitely to keep up with, and this is not an easy job, but it's the only job that I ever want. So, um, don't think this is the last of that you'll hear from me. Not only can you catch me in the meantime on my cousin's podcast, Hair Raising Horror, which you can check out on Spotify, Apple Castbox, anything that you can stream your podcast on that again is hair raising horror that you can catch with Zelina and April featuring me every once in a while. But I would just like to say that I have thoroughly enjoyed being on Tuesdays with Trisha. This was something that started as I was working in the medical field and I was just casually telling murder stories to all my coworkers at work. And then I discovered Crime Junkies and it kind of launched me into doing this. So I want to thank all of my listeners. And I want to thank everybody who's taken even the moment just to even take a 10 second listen if that's all it was. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I hope it wasn't too annoying to all of you. Um, so this is my farewell to Tuesdays with Trisha. It's been great. But if you are a fan of me and want to catch me with guests each week, I am launching my new podcast on Friday, July 9th. And this one is definitely a lot more different spin, Um, but I get to not only have awesome guests on the show, talk about murder, but I also get to enjoy some alcohol. So if you like that. Catch me on my newest show that's called Tequila and a Shot of True Crime. (laughs) Bye-bye. So I hope to see you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Keep keep it creepy. creepy.